If you want to understand how crazy the California real estate market is, just listen to the local news. Well, tonight, a crumbling shack is the new face of San Francisco's sky-high real estate market. Take a look. This uninhabitable dwelling could be yours if you cough up Just this month, a CBS affiliate reported on this San Francisco property. It's an old house, it's actually unsafe to enter, that went on the market for $2.5 million. A few days later, the same TV station reported from an empty lot in Palo Alto. It was on the market for $9 million. There's no home, no garage, no driveway, nothing, just a lot. But the realtor says he's already received some interest. The process of finding a place to live is long and difficult and arduous. Farhad Manju is an opinion columnist for The New York Times, lives in the Bay Area. I'm lucky because we did it about four years ago when it seemed impossible. And now it just seems even, you know, 10 times more impossible. I wanted to know how this impossible real estate market has started changing the way he lives. Like when he talks about real estate with the people next door, what do they even say? It's a good question. I mean, uh, well, sort of literally, I don't really talk to my neighbors. My neighbors are, um, you know, they have a sort of same size townhouse, but it's four or five people who work at Google who don't know each other who live in this condo. And I think that's true of, you know, a lot of the people around where I live. Like, it's it's sort of like um, corporate housing for tech people. This surge of tech workers... It's part of the problem. It's squeezing everyone, raising the cost of living. And for some people, this isn't just an inconvenience. Nearly a quarter of the country's homeless population now lives in California. The kind of glaring inequality is just something that's very difficult to kind of comprehend. I'm from Durban in South Africa, where there are kind of, you know, squatter camps and people living on the side of the street. And in many parts of San Francisco, it feels that way. It feels like you're not in, you know, one of the richest places in the country. This year, the California state legislature considered this plan that could have helped ease the housing crisis in the state. But just this past week, that effort failed. Farhad says in a state like his, which is run by a single party, you'd think a legislative fix would be pretty simple. Instead, the story of what happened with this bill shows how policymaking isn't just broken in Washington, D.C., but around the country. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. 
clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The solution the California state legislature was considering was a bill called SB 50. It would have rezoned entire neighborhoods across the state so that developers could build higher occupancy homes near public transportation. That's a big deal because so much of California is zoned strictly for single-family dwellings. This law was proposed by a state senator named Scott Weiner. He is a progressive who has been associated with a group that has come to be known as the Yimbies, so yes in my backyard, uh, as opposed to the Nimbies who, you know, have this idea of not in my backyard. So Weiner has been kind of a hero of the Yimbies and has put forward you know, these types of proposals in the past. Yeah, I mean, I was impressed when I read that, you know, yes, last year, Wiener had put forward a bill, lots of people had piled on criticizing it, and he reworked it, and he brought something back to the state this year, and it seemed to have much more support. So it seemed like he was really putting in the work here. It did, although there were kind of warning signs from the start. What happened here eventually is that it was delayed in a committee. And it was obvious that it would go to this committee, the Appropriations Committee in the Senate. And and it was obvious that the chair of that committee um, had problems with the bill, I think had stated that in the past. But there was sort of an expectation on the part of Wiener and I think others that kind of higher ups in the Senate would let it go forward anyway. And that didn't happen. And it has not been killed. It's been sort of officially delayed until next year, although everyone thinks that in a um, you know, election year, it'll be much harder to pass. So effectively killed. Um, but I think there was a there was a guess on Wiener's part that more people were on board with the bill than he thought. Yeah. I mean, the opposition to this bill was pretty fierce. I was just looking around to see, like, what what were people saying when they were, you know, coming out against this bill? I found an ad that used some old tape of James Baldwin talking about San Francisco and how it was trying to drive black people out by revitalization. And it was basically putting SB 50 into that same category. It was something called urban renewal which means moving the Negroes out. It means Negro removal. In San Francisco, the black population has dropped by half since 1960. SB 50 will displace working communities of color. Scott, Yeah, I mean, that sort of rhetoric is not unusual in San Francisco. San Francisco has been sort of against development in a in a very aggressive way for a long time. It's very difficult to build to build in San Francisco. Um, but I, th- I would say the opposition broke down sort of into into two camps. There were these kind of wealthy enclaves that were worried about their single-family housing areas becoming just a lot more populous. And then there are criticisms from tenants' rights groups in big cities who argue that developers are only, if they're allowed to build, they're only going to build housing for the wealthy. They're only going to build sort of, you know, expensive luxury condos and that that's going to hurt low-income people even more. I mean, you wrote an op-ed about SB 50 after it broke down and it looked like it wasn't going anywhere. You seem pretty disappointed in your neighbors who had gotten this bill killed off. I'm so disappointed in my neighbors. I mean, this this has just been the opposition to building to building and to allowing more people in is something that I really 
I feel that my sort of wealthy liberal neighbors are really misguided about. And it's something, you know, I lived in San Francisco for about 10 years before I moved to the suburbs around San Francisco. And I noticed it, I noticed that feeling kind of everywhere. In the city, that was the case. In the suburbs, that's the case. And it really seems at odd, that, that sentiment seems at odds with the way that liberals around here talk about immigrants talk about kind of openness uh, to letting people into the United States, a fe- you know, feelings that I, as an immigrant, also share. People are just su- very upset that next to their houses, there are going to be these condos where, you know, lots of people might live and it might affect their traffic and it might affect their morning commute. And who knows what kind of people will come here. It just, uh, it just feels very <laughs> wrong and unwelcoming to me. Have you read the comments on your article? Uh, I read a bunch. There were a lot of comments, so I don't know if I've read every one, but I read um, I read many of them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by them. It was a lot of people weighing in, <laughs> yeah. basically saying, you know, it's not that we don't want people here, it's just that we don't want the character of our neighborhood to change. One person saying, we've already experimented with hulking mass-scaled affordable housing in this country, and the results were catastrophic because of arrogant city planners and an effort to scale up housing at an industrial scale. People having real fears here. But then also, it definitely feels code for something they would feel less comfortable saying out loud. (laughs) Um, I mean, some people seemed comfortable saying saying it out loud. I noticed people in the comments and on Twitter and elsewhere saying, the problem is we just have too many people. There's overpopulation in California, and we just should not let any, any more people in. And if you don't, if you can't find, uh, you know, a, a place to live that you can afford in my neighborhood, don't live here. And... You know, this is code for, it's not even code. It's it's not a different sentiment from what Donald Trump says, uh, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere. I think he said things like, you know, we are full. Um, that's the same thing these people are saying. Which is funny because I think the population in California is actually going down. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's going down, but the... the um, Number of people leaving California is going up. I mean, uh, out-migration from California um, has been going up for 10 or 15 years and, um, you know, for understandable reasons. It's, I've contemplated leaving. Like, it's it's very expensive and it feels, you know, every month that you pay for housing, it feels like you're wasting your money. It feels like you could be anywhere else and be living a kind of a less insane life. Um <laughs> And so I understand why people might be wanting to leave. Here's the thing. I looked at I looked at these comments and I did I agree with you that so many of them were ridiculous and seemed to be coded racism, if not just outright racism. But then I looked at the people who were critical of this bill, SB fifty, and it seemed to me like they had some really valid points too. I mean, I wonder if you can make the plausible case against SB 50 and articulate that a little bit. One of the main arguments against it is that um, developers are interested only in building housing for rich people. It seems to be what's happening in San Francisco. In San Francisco, much of the new housing is smallish, you know, one-bedroom condos or studio condos that are in high-rises. 
it looks like they're only for people who work at tech companies, who make a lot of money, who don't really need to be in their place very much, um, you know, who want conveniences like gyms in their building, but they're not places where you, you know, you think you can raise families. And I feel like I feel like it's that idea is sort of bolstered by the fact that the YIMBY groups, the Yes in My Backyard groups, they've been funded a lot by tech companies. And so it creates this optics of, you know, the tech industry is just trying to get more and more space for more and more people who are not the people who have lived in this community for a long time, but are tech bros, for lack of a better word. Right. Um, And, you know, and it's also San Francisco has been especially kind to tech companies. The uh, sort of tax uh, benefit that Twitter and other companies got just ended, but it lasted for 10 years that allowed them, you know, to get uh, really favorable conditions to, to stay in the city. So, you know, you're not really off base if you if you think that the city has been sort of accommodative to tech companies and because of that and because of kind of the kinds of housing that's being built, you're going to exacerbate this idea that it's like a one-company town. Um, I do think those are legitimate criticisms. On the other hand, I don't think that you get affordable housing by not building anymore. If Even if it's the case that the kinds of housing that's being built you know, is sort of aimed at one type of group. There are ways, you know, ways that we can enshrine in law to, um, one, sort of require that when you build that kind of housing, you developers are required to kind of build more affordable housing alongside with it. And there are also, you know, valid economic arguments that building more housing, even if it's aimed at one type of group, will ease housing costs, you know, for all, for everyone. I mean, I don't know. Is is that true, though? I mean, didn't Chicago experiment with this idea of letting developers build more housing, and then they found it just sort of raised rents for everyone? I don't know about Chicago. Uh, I do know about Seattle. And Seattle has had, I think, higher and, um, you know, a higher job rate than San Francisco. Seattle also has, you know, a big tech scene, uh, big tech companies there. Um, but they have been more lenient on housing and housing costs have um, gone up a lot slower. Um, and they've still gone up. These are cities that are booming that have, um, that have uh, you know, supply constraints, but they've gone up a lot less uh, than in San Francisco. San Francisco is, you know, particularly difficult to build in, um, in the Bay Area generally. And I think that one of the difficulties is that we focus on San Francisco as a city. But if you go, you know, just down the peninsula below San Francisco, that this is a land of just sort of full suburbia, where there's lots of space, where it's possible to build, you know, apartments in small buildings that don't cost as much as kind of high rises in the city, where you could get you know, more affordable rents. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you that we need more housing. And I think the fundamental disagreement is how we get there, where some of the criticism of SB50 was about that it was funneling incentives to developers 
And folks worried that that would mean prioritizing their interests over the communities. You know, they worried about the fact that there wasn't discussion of creating more infrastructure when you create big buildings in your community and, Mm -hmm. you know, schools, things that you would need if you're injecting a lot more people into a site. And then there's also the idea of should we really be incentivizing developers Or should we be even more ambitious? Should we be thinking about housing as a public good the same way, you know, we think about other things that are essential to living a happy life? The difficulties in this, I mean, I think these are all both valid criticisms of SB 50 and also probably a better way to go about making housing policy. The difficulty with sort of getting more ambitious with these kinds of ideas is that, for one thing, the problems that we have in cities often feel like local problems, and it's difficult to get kind of larger buy-in at a state level and particularly at sort of the federal level. And so, you know, I agree. I feel like we should have much more, you know, subsidies, incentives to, um, and perhaps real kind of public money being spent on housing, but also all other kinds of infrastructure. But we've seen where talk about infrastructure bill has gone in Washington. It's become a joke. It's not something that seems, you know, in the offing soon. And in that imperfect situation, I felt like SB 50, I feel like easing the way to building, even if even if it involves kinder treatment to un, to developers that you may not like, is a better way than what we're doing now in California and in many other places, which is essentially nothing and kind of letting the problem get worse and worse. Hmm. Yeah, in your op-ed, you raised this really interesting point. You talked about how in America, local problems plaguing cities are systemically sidelined by the structure of the national media and the government, which is kind of what you're saying now, which is you might accept that, yeah, we should be doing something bigger, But the problem is gridlock in Washington and the fact that people aren't paying attention to these local issues in the way they maybe once did. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's even wrong to think about them as local issues. The problems that I describe that are affecting California and um, San Francisco are problems that essentially every urban area in the United States is facing in some way or another. that means that it's a problem that kind of the majority of Americans are facing. But we don't have a way to translate those problems into action at the national level. I, I say in my piece that, you know, my county has more people in it than all of North Dakota, which has, uh, you know, two senators. And, you know, North Dakota doesn't have these types of problems. And because there are lots of senators uh, from these places that don't have a high population, because the presidency is, uh, you know, based on an electoral count that is also uh, affected by these, um, you know, perversions. Uh, because of all that, there's not a lot of attention being paid to these kind of local problems. There's no kind of incentive for national uh, lawmakers or little incentive to focus on these problems that affect mostly democratic cities um, or, de- you know, cities where lots of Democrats live. Um, and so it's kind of bizarre. Like you see um, all these uh, Democrats running for president, all of their constituents are in these cities facing these problems of housing and transportation. And housing and transportation is just, you know, sidelined in the conversation. People aren't really talking about it. In California, 
a fix for the housing crisis is going to have to wait. That state bill that was moving through the legislature has been spiked. But the governor has said he wants to add three and a half million new housing units in the next few years. So I asked Farhad, how's he going to do that? Well, there are a number of other kind of pro-housing measures. So some of the people in the EMB groups are kind of betting on those. But it's hard to know, right? The, the governor put out a statement saying he was disappointed with uh, what happened with SB 50. But the governor hasn't you know, suggested what he would do instead. He has made this pledge to have a lot more housing. And it's unclear how we will get to his numbers um, without something like SB 50. Honestly, it feels like basically what it's been forever, this state of gridlock and uncertainty, and we don't know kind of what will happen next. Yeah, you mentioned how you think about leaving. Are you serious about that? Like, do you think you would go? I have two young kids in a school that they like, so it's unlikely we'd leave anytime soon. We live in a place that we like, um, but we can probably never leave. Uh, but, you know, uh, other than that, it's okay. Um, before we had kids, <laughs> before we had kids, or when our kids were very young, before they started school, it's something we thought about all the time. Like, before we bought this house, before my parents live in Southern California, where it's, you know, somewhat more affordable, we thought about moving there. Um, I really don't want to leave. And, you know, every time I go somewhere else and I come back, I feel like, it's home. Um, So I don't want to leave, but I don't think it's out of the question that at some point I will have to leave or it will just be much easier and make be an obvious financial decision to leave. Farhad Manju, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. It's great to be here. Farhad Manju is an op-ed writer at The New York Times. All right, that's the show. If you have listened to this episode and you too are struggling with how to afford life in any of the cities we talked about, tweet at me. Tell me your story. I'm on Twitter at Mary's Desk. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. All right, talk to you next week.